This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, arrivals, departures, sequesters, and Oscars. Matt Makoviak will join us from Texas interpreting the arrival strategy of freshman Senator Ted Cruz, who's descended on the Capitol like a tornado crossing the panhandle. That compared to the comparatively gentle breeze of Marco Rubio. Ann Edwards joins us from Washington, offering her take on the departure of Pope Benedict XVI from the Vatican, choppering to Castel Gandolfo on the first chapter of his surprise retirement. Then Chris Freitz comes in from National Journal, rounding out our discussion on the sequester battle that pits Congress on one side, the White House on the other, and Bob Woodward in the middle. And finally, we'll take up the other polyoptic moments of the week, the ongoing frustration over access for the White House press corps reporters to the president, and the one of the ways in which the first family does an end run around their inquiry, showing up to hand out the Best Picture Oscar at the 85th Annual Academy Awards. But first, let's head down to Austin, Texas, to catch up with our old friend Matt Makoviak, founder and president of Potomac Strategy Group. Matt served as press secretary to Senators Kay Bailey Hutchison and Conrad Burns, and through his Twitter feed is a guy I never lose track of. Matt, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, Josh. Great to be with you. First, based on the Twitter feed, Matt, how did the Horns end up last night? Well, they won in, in overtime. It's been a dreadful season for the Longhorns, but they came back from 22 down and beat up the uh, hated rival Oklahoma in, in, uh, in overtime. Excellent night for you. And, and a pretty good uh, spring so far for Texas with its new freshman senator, Ted Cruz. I want to hear a little bit of his uh, questioning or commentary uh, at the committee room regarding Secretary-designate Chuck Hagel and get your take on how you might be advising him on his arrival strategy to Washington. It may be that he spoke at radical or extreme groups or anti-Israel groups and accepted financial compensation. We don't know. He could not even say that the $200,000 he received did not come directly from a foreign government. And the question this committee asked, have you been paid directly by a foreign government, I would suggest it is every bit as relevant to know if that $200,000 that he's disclosed came from a foreign government. Now, it may be perfectly appropriate. We might conclude that it, it was benign, it was reasonable, but it is at a minimum relevant to know if that $200,000 that he deposited in his bank account came directly from Saudi Arabia, came directly from North Korea. Okay, Matt, so you are press secretary to uh, new Senator Ted Cruz. Is he doing it right, or would you modify him in any way? <laughs> you know, I, I agree with you. I think he certainly has taken Washington by, by storm uh, as he's gotten up there. And I think that, you know, the notion that the freshman senators are, are supposed to be seen and not heard uh, is a product of a bygone era. I think that's that's largely changed. You know, keep in mind the Senate doesn't have old bulls uh, anymore. They're retiring. They're not running for re-election. And so uh, there is a lot of impatience in national politics. And I think what, what Ted Cruz is doing is he is doing exactly what he said he'd do. Um, you know, he, he ran for the U.S. Senate in a long-shot bid that no one thought he would win uh, by promising to be a conservative fighter. And so I think you've seen that. Now, if, if you want to talk specifically about the Hegel episode, um, I think the one thing that he said that was probably a, a, a mistake was, was referencing uh, North Korea as a potential uh, entity by, 
that, that might have uh, provided compensation to Hagel. I think the point that, that we don't know where he got financial compensation when he was giving speeches uh, in the period after he left the Senate before he was nominated to be Secretary of Defense is a fair question. But in the likelihood of it being North Korea, when you don't know which which nation it is, um, was a little bit a little bit a little bit over the top. And I also think that it the, the lesson here for Cruz is he is going to be a firebrand. He is going to draw a lot of attention. And when you you know the, the left and the media is going to take the sort of most extreme thing you say and use it to represent everything you say. And so I think that's the lesson for him. He's got to be very careful. Uh, when he's being a firebrand, to not go over the over the line. I think on North Korea, on that portion of it, I thought he did go slightly over the line. And yet, you know, we had several weeks of testimony of um, the major uh, cabinet appointments for President Obama in his second term, Senator John Kerry to state relatively a breeze, uh, Jack Lew at Treasury a little bit less so, but still got through fine, Secretary Hagel or Senator Hagel the firestorm, and you were sort of certainly tweeting your opinion about it. In the end, though, Matt, you know, the the vote was held and now he is Secretary of Defense Hagel, perhaps wounded by the process. He was going to get through anyway. Was it worth the fight for people like Cruz and others? I, I'm not convinced he was always 100% going to get through. Um, I think the real key was that, that the Obama administration was able to hold all the Democrats. When you got 55 Democrats and you only end, ended up needing, you know, 50 or 51 votes, so as long as he held the Democrats, yes, he was always going to be confirmed. I think this was more about making the point that we need a Secretary of Defense that's strong on Israel, that represents, that, excuse me, understands the threat that Iran represents. And, you know, look, Hegel, uh, to the extent that he was successful, um, it was by, uh, you know, running away from nearly everything he'd said in public over the last five years, certainly on these controversial subjects. I don't think he was nominated because President Obama thought he would be uh, you know, uh, a competent uh, at, at disavowing his public statements. I think he nominated him because he, he liked his independent voice and the fact that he had been a Republican um, and the fact that he'd been a veteran. So, but but in terms of what was gained, um, I think what was gained is that, that you have Hegel going in probably as the weakest Secretary of Defense uh, in a generation. But is that uh, good for our country's defense? I'm not sure that it's, uh, well, I'm not sure that it's a, it's a, quote, good thing for the country, um, what I do think is true is that it, it's going to minimize his ability to probably do what he would have liked to have done, which is enter into a world with no, with no nuclear weapons, uh, try to reach some type of, of uh, compromise with Iran, uh, probably be a little bit softer towards our, our, our uh, support for Israel. I mean, those are things I don't think are in our American best interest, and so to the extent that we were able to uh, undermine his ability to do those things, I think that's good for the country. Well, we'll check in on that with you in about a year and see if, you know, the, the bigger issues is, or some of the other issues are, are what kind of a national defense and are we going to have uh, in the United States and how are we going to uh, care for military families. Just to, to pivot, though, to, I mean, you're such a good observer of the things that are good about your party, the things that are challenging about your party. Let's look at one individual and, the, and then the party as a whole. By contrast to Senator Cruz, Give us your take on how Senator Rubio has arrived in Washington. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you compare the Rubio story um, and to, to the Cruz story, right? Uh, you know, both uh, uh, children of, of Cuban refugees, both rising stars, elected to the United States Senate in their 40s, both ran, you know, long shot, unlikely campaigns against establishment candidates uh, in their states. Uh, and both are, you know, conservative rising stars. 
I think both models work. I mean, the, the Rubio model of keeping your head down, not doing national press, traveling the state relentlessly the first two years, boning up on national security and foreign policy, uh, I think it served him very well. It, you know, it showed that he was uh, you know, willing to be serious about policy, willing to buy his time, willing to build relationships in the Senate. Um, the, Cruz, the Cruz model, I think, is different. Uh, I think it's worked for him primarily because Cruz is more substantive than, than, than almost any freshman senator in my memory. Because of his from, previous congressional experience and his training? Yeah, I think that's, you know, having served in the Bush campaign, having worked in Washington at DOJ and FTC, having been Solicitor General and, and, and arguing in front of the Supreme Court, he's also just off the charts uh, on intelligence. And anyone who has ever interacted with him will, will tell you that. Um, and so, you know, I think that the Cruz model is, is he was, first of all, extremely effective uh, before he got there. He got, uh, he became uh, vice chair of the NRSC. Uh, for grassroots, so he's he sort of has a, a seat at the table on the leadership side, which was important for a freshman senator. Secondly, he got a waiver to get on judiciary. Given his background, he wants to be on judiciary. His home state's uh, uh, Senator Cornyn is also on judiciary. Usually you can't have more than one member from the same state on one committee. Um, and then he was able to get armed services, and he got on armed services because Cornyn gave up armed services. So he's on armed services and judiciary and commerce. He's going to be at the apex of a number of key issues. On judiciary, he's got guns and immigration. On armed services, you've got all the national security issues and obviously Hegel. Um, so he's positioned to be a major player. But back to Rubio, um, Rubio has really started to, to step out, you know, giving the State of the Union response. Uh, he's spoken at CPAC in the past. Uh, he obviously was a major speaker at the National Convention this past year. Um, so the models are different, and, and I think for each of them, they serve them each well. Uh, and they're, they're both going to be national stars for, for years to come. Well, a party made up completely of Marco Rubio's and Ted Cruz's would be indeed formidable, uh, even down into the uh, management of the party itself. But Matt Makoviak, you came up to Washington last week to the uh, to the NGA and the RGA meetings and, and spent some time both with governors and those that support them. I saw some criticism you made, I think, of, of the party's own digital uh, infrastructure and capabilities. Uh, it's the GOP right now is not entirely made up of of people with the intelligence of Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. What are the what are the challenges it faces both for 2014 and 2016? Well, I think as you look back at the 2012 race, I think there's there's really three areas, and I don't I don't necessarily think this is any great insight, but I think it's it's data, it's digital, and it's demographics, and the party's got to address all three of those with you know hair on fire, urgency, and intensity. Um, and I think they're starting to really in, in all three areas. On the data side, the Obama ca- campaign, you know, ran the most advanced campaign in, in political history in 2008, and they decided to basically tear it up and start all over in 2012. And given how fast technology is changing uh, and the data revolution that we're living in, um, that was that was a really a, a quite savvy move. Um, the way they're able to to micro-target uh, voters based on all kinds of data that's out there, consumer data. Uh, and demographic data really was was so far beyond what the Romney campaign the RNC was able to do that, that we were at a major disadvantage. Um, on the digital side, uh, you know, the Obama campaign had I don't know three or four or five times as many digital professionals on their campaign staff as we did, um, and, and that is both for fundraising but also for organizing and email list development and all these different areas. Um, we've we've got to massively ramp up, and I was encouraged to see that the, the House campaign committee on our side. Uh, is tripling their digital staff for the 2014 cycle. On the demographic piece, you know, this has been often often talked about, but we're losing Hispanics. Uh, you know, seven out of ten Hispanics are voting for Democrats, and I think the, obviously the language Republicans have used over the last five to ten years on immigration 
has prevented a, a demographic constituency, which I think would naturally be with Republicans. Hispanics are generally fairly socially conservative. They're very interested in the free market and hard work um, and capitalism and low taxes and a strong national defense. I mean, all, all these issues, they should be Republicans, but they've been, I think, prevented from, from that outreach by, you know, self-deportation uh, and sanctuary cities and all this kind of language Republicans have used. So I'm very encouraged by, by what Rubio's done and others have done on the immigration issue. I think we're likely to get a comprehensive compromise immigration bill this year that will pass the Senate with 70, 75 votes, uh, and ultimately the challenge will be in the House. But I think ultimately we're likely to get that bill done, and that'll give Republicans a chance to make the case to Hispanic voters in a way they haven't in the last few cycles. Matt, last question before I bring in my friend Ann Edwards to share in the conversation with us. Uh, one of the reasons I enjoy following you so much is because beyond the politics, you give me such a window into uh, Texas culture and what's going on in the Lone Star State and also popular culture as a whole. I think you and I, while we may have partisan differences, we share a lot of uh, uh, interests and in the kinds of things like that we watch on TV. And one thing that you drew my attention to, which I w- which absolutely brought a tear to my eye, was the story of uh, that Steve Hartman did for CBS of Mitchell Marcus, a basketball player on El Paso Coronado's team. Can you yep. can you share with our listeners about that and, and what's going on down there? Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, it's easy to get cynical about, um, you know, American life today. Um, but, you know, by virtue of, of a video I saw posted by a friend on Facebook, I came across uh, this report that you referenced. And and it's just one of those great stories in America that, that, that sort of gives you goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Uh, there was a, a high school basketball team in El Paso that had a development, developmentally challenged uh, kid that was a manager. You know, one of these kids that um, that gives a team, uh, you know, heart and that it, it uh, you know is totally devoted and loves basketball, but obviously can't enjoy the sport uh, the way that an average, you know, an average kid can. And so the last game, the coach decided he was going to put. It was almost like a almost a Rudy kind of situation, although the the, the kid was obviously develop, developmentally challenged. Just decided to dress him, decided he was going to play him no matter what the situation was at the end of the game. Of course, the kid gets in, and uh, they the, the team takes a couple opportunities to try to get the guy to score by passing the ball when he's way out in front on a fast break, and he misses a couple of layups, and there's the clock's running out. So there, there's like five seconds on the clock, and the other team has the ball, and they're, and they're passing uh, the ball in. <clears throat> and uh, the player on the opposing team decides to throw it to – to the kid on to the developmentally challenged kid on the Coronado team, uh, and he you know shoots the ball and makes the layup as the clock goes out, and and it's just such a touching thing, um, such sportsmanship to see exemplified by high school kids. Yeah, he was carried off and his name was being cheered. It's a great video. I, I posted it to my Twitter and Facebook, and you can find it online. I think fairly easily. Yeah. It's sure gone viral. So and it's just one of those moments in American life that are, are, it's just so so special. And, and we've, uh, we've seen it. Community. And we've seen it before, Matt. You know, it's it's not a great picture. It's taken from the top of the grandstand, from center court, most of it. But you understand the narrative of what's going on as long as Steve Hartman is telling the story in his voiceover. And you see all the efforts to, to get uh, young Mitchell Marcus his basket. Um, and then you see the crowd uh, spilling onto the court. And then, and then Hartman does his sort of sit-down interviews in the locker rooms with the kids on both sides. And put together with even the grainy mid-court top of the bleachers video it is great storytelling from texas absolutely uh it's just really you're right it's great journalism uh you know look great journalism reveals 
something about humanity and and but by you know revealing something that's true and and again i mean what what is what's so striking about this for me is number one these are high school kids you know when i was in high school uh, sometimes you sort of made fun of of kids that had challenges so that was a striking contrast right there um but but second again is that we we're, we we see so much in popular culture that's that's debasing that's uh you know that's not age appropriate that's that's troubling and and here was a case of you know kids that were um uh, or again, de- demonstrating the best of humanity that I don't even know you would you would see from adults because to see that from high school kids and to have the journalist tell the story in the way that he did was was really quite remarkable. Well, what a perfect segue to the sequester battle then. Uh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Ann Edwards, my old friend from the Clinton White House, who I've been best pals with since 1992. She was uh, director of advance on the Clinton for President campaign, Clinton Gore, and then in the White House, and and uh, I think shut the lights off, right, Ann, for the from the Clinton years. Yeah, something like that. You always you always promote me. I was just director of press advance. Welcome. Thank God, there were better people around. Welcome back to our show. Thank you, my dear. So, Anne, uh, this week was has been fascinating for you and me, and I think Matt has also tweeted about it. Uh, our old friend from the White House, Gene Sperling, currently the chairman of the National Economic Council for President Obama, was uh, revealed this week as the sender of an email uh, to Bob Woodward uh, a, from the Washington Post, an author uh, of uh, the most recent book on the Grand Bargain, which who, and we had Bob on the show uh, a few months ago. And I want to hear uh, the conversation that he had with Jim Vandehei and Mike Allen that has erupted into a bit of a firestorm, even as the sequester uh, battle is unresolved uh, and facing uh, implementation this week. Let's hear from Bob Woodward. After I laid out what I was going to say in the column. Uh, I talked with this person and uh, he yelled at me for about a half hour and sent me this email. I apologize for raising my voice in our conversation today. I uh, said you're focusing on a few specific trees that gives a very wrong impression of the forest, but perhaps we will just not see eye to eye here. And, uh, and then, you know, does something that I, I, I think is important for people to understand. Uh, he says, you know, says, I think you will regret staking out that claim. So, Ann Edwards, give me your sort of span of involvement with Bob Woodward and the way he would come into our White House to write his books and then continued writing them about uh, the Bush administration and and into the Obama administration, how the process with Woodward works and why this dust up with Gene is either big or maybe not so big. Uh, Rod Mandate, let me go for the uh, forest first, that Bob is a, clearly a very serious journalist, a very serious guy, and a very highly respected guy for all the right reasons. He does his homework, he's good to his sources, um, he's got a very long track record of being highly credible, which is where he draws his personal authority. Anyone can say they're a journalist, but the people who have a really long record of time and again doing it right are the ones that begin to have an authority of using that word that doesn't make them an expert on everything, but they do know their craft really well. Um, Gene Sperling is also an extraordinarily honorable guy, high in integrity. And 
I'm not quite sure when I heard Bob's tone of voice when he read that, because later Politico, the uh, the publication for, uh, was it Mike Allen and Jim Vandehey who was? Yeah, they went over to Bob's okay. apartment in Georgetown uh, and sat in the same chair that so many of Bob's subjects sit when he's asking them questions. And it was striking to me that we only saw a very brief video clip of that conversation, the one which, you know, includes the you know, the phrase, um, I think you will regret staking out that claim. And you can read the whole email. It's now published because well, it was wait added, a second. It, yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, but I want to, the whole email is, um, is important to read, yeah. but the whole sentence is more important. And again, Mike Allen and Jim Vandehey are also incredibly respectable guys who have earned it, earned the respect. But the sentence, the full sentence from Gene was to Bob I do truly believe you should rethink your comment about saying that POTUS asking for revenues is moving the goalpost. I know you may not believe this, but as a friend, I think you will regret staking out that claim. That's a little different. You know, Bob, you're going out on a limb that's going to get sawed off behind you, is what that says to me. Uh, The email goes on and reinforces that. Now, I'm guessing. I haven't spoken to either of these guys about it, of course. But... I think there's more to be read in a calmer fashion. But hearing Bob's voice, if anybody knows about threats from the White House, it is Mr. Woodward. And I was around when Bob was a kid. Um, I would like to say I was in grade school at the time, but I wasn't. Um, When Bob and Carl were kid reporters at the Washington Post, and I was a tiny little news puppy at ABC News, and everybody was chasing this thing called Watergate. Um, they weren't famous then. And uh, time and again, uh, the White House would come crashing down on them. They weren't saying uh, the White House wasn't giving any information to anybody. So Bob Woodward knows when a White House is being rough. This doesn't, to me, meet that standard. Bob is going to have to speak for himself if even by inference from the tone of his voice, which I don't mean to go too far because I really right. respect him, that um, I don't think he thinks Gene's going to kneecap him, you know, it's because uh, um, Gene doesn't do that. Right. And as this news cycle has continued, uh, these thing, as these things often do, Anne and Matt, uh, the reply email from Bob Woodward back to Gene Sperling is now also in the public domain. It says, Gene, you do not ever have to apologize to me. You get wound up because you are making your points and you believe them. This is all part of a serious discussion. I, for one, welcome a little heat. There should be more given the importance. I also welcome your personal advice. I am listening. I know you lived all this. My partial advantage is that I talked extensively with all involved. I am traveling and will try and reach you after 3 p.m. today. Best, Bob. Now, Matt... Uh, Makoviak, you tweeted out uh, sirens, Sperling threatens Woodward, and you said, what offends the media is Woodward's proactive effort to insert himself into the story seeking White House accountability. It's a little unseemly. What's going on from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with everything Ann said, and, and I think you know Woodward is respected. It's always amazing to me that he is able to get the access he does in these different White Houses, because almost always the, the books that he comes out with are... are you know, reveal, you know, negative sort of information about each White House, but they all, you know, seek to be part of it. Um, you know, what, what I meant by unseemly was was not, you know, obviously Woodward has a perspective here based on the reporting he's done. 
I just I get a little nervous when journalists become part of the story themselves. Um, it, it sort of is a, a third person or first person type of thing, and, and it's now become first person. Um, and obviously, from my perspective, I'm I'm glad he's holding the West accountable, and I think they've been sort of MIA on the leadership front of it here. But I'm just you know going back to the the, the so-called threat. When you read it, it seems like less of a threat than it was reported as being. Um, but you know, the, the funny thing about threats. Uh, you know, is that it's a threat whether someone perceives it or, or, or not, right? I mean, it's it's in the eye of the beholder. And if Woodward felt even in a more minor sense threatened, uh, then that makes it that makes it uh, you know sort of improper and, and a little bit disconcerting. Um, again, if you go back to the substance of it, it seems like Sperling was saying, "Look, you've had a great career. I think the point you're trying to make is one that you're going to wish you hadn't made yeah. on a substantive standpoint, not that you're going to you know." They uh, uh, personally and physically regret it. Obviously, that, 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 that that's a foolish thing to put in an email to begin with. Uh, and Sperling's not the kind of person that, that would engage in that kind of politics. So uh, it is interesting to see how this has become a little bit of a firestorm. It's also interesting to me to see how the press has really not stood by Woodward that much on this. They've been pretty critical of him. And I just wonder how much of that is, is sort of envy. Matt, when I was looking at this whole thing, I think I don't think that Bob's of course, trying to be a story or inserting himself as a story. Figure the whole story right now of sequester is a war of wills. The only thing they have to throw at each other is words, because nobody's throwing legislation or plans, really. They're not. They're they're trying to will each side that their position is the better position, and we were taking this position, and the other guy didn't do this position. And Bob is the one who's come out with the most definitive uh, pull-back-the-curtain on that procedure. So I think that's how Bob ended up in the middle of this, because it's one of the only pieces of evidence that other reporters who have not uh, blazed that trail uh, have had to work with on this incredibly complicated story, which no one can encapsulate in a tweet. This is a story that don't fit in a tweet. That's right. I mean, Bob's uh, reporting back to 2000, beginning of the uh, first Obama term, but hitting its crescendo in 2011, uh, is more copious than anyone has bothered to reconstruct events before. And let's face it, uh, Matt and Anne, this is a business, and there's there is value for Bob Woodward probably in uh, restaking a claim and rejoining. Uh, the argument over the weekend because, uh, you know, sales of his work and also his his opportunities to further his brand depend on him I, being part of this discussion. Let me challenge you a bit there. I, I want to tell you, first off, I am moving out of my range of competence on this issue. Yeah. I don't know anymore, but um, I'm leaving it behind. But um, uh, I will tell you this. Bob's pattern has always been that he has a long game. Yep. Bob doesn't do a lot of short game. Bob has a long game. He works a long arc. He works over a long period of time and then comes out with uh, quite a sculpted piece. Um, so for Bob to insert himself in short term in a story that has no resolution, has no foreseeable resolution, if Bob Woodward were a, to stake out a claim, which is against everything I've ever known about him, actually, but... If Bob were to stake out a claim, he ain't going to do it this weekend for this reason on this email, I would suggest. Let's pivot for both of you um, to the larger question, even as we face this sequester week. 
of the fundamental relationship between the White House uh, and the White House press corps that covers the president. And Anne, you and I were uh, emailing back and forth two weeks ago when President Obama, uh, over the President's Day holiday, went down to Florida to uh, golf with some of his friends and some special guests. And uh, let's hear, and it, and it rose the ire of the travel pool that was with him. Can you school Matt and me both on why the pool was there and what might have been the problem and a problem that, frankly, I didn't see? Uh, one thing I'd like to insert, um, I also spent more years in big grown-up newsrooms uh, practicing journalism than I did at the White House, and I was in two White Houses in the press office. The pool is supposed to be kind of, it goes back to being a deal where the presidency is so important that they want everybody understands the need that there are eyes on the president or as close to possible as eyes on the president at all times. The president of the United States after World War II clearly became the most important office in the world. Um, things can happen in a moment, and it's not just about, God help us, Dallas. It's about President Eisenhower's heart attack. It's it's about President Wilson's incapacity. It's it's about uh, whether how badly uh, President Reagan was wounded on that dreadful afternoon. Um, but there's always a pool nearby so that if something unexpected were to happen, they're close. They can go. It's also, in a way, a deal between um, a lot of press. It's a great big universe out there of media. Um, it's a deal between them and the White House. It's a trusted pattern. So say life gets 500, 1,000 people in the credential to the White House. Not all 1,000 of them have to go everywhere the president goes. Not all 1,000 of them have to follow him to church or follow him to the Capitol or out to dinner on Valentine's Day. There's a small group and they wrestle with the White House and come to an agreement over the size of that group um, that is representing the others, will always be summoned, come hither when it's time for us to leave the safe grounds of the White House, and you will come with us, whether it's on Air Force One and we're going to Afghanistan or get in the motorcade, we're going to a basketball game with one of the kids. Um, that does not mean they always get invited into the event, but they are nearby. The people who are in that group are determined by rotations decided by the press. The White House can't say, well, we snap, snap the finger, come hither, the Washington Post or the Los Angeles Times. The uh, press themselves, the television group, the radio group, uh, digital groups are now trying to form themselves so they can do the same thing. They pick their rep on a rotation. And that's what the pool is. So when the president was going to Florida for a few days off, he was taking just this pool. They told all the rest of the press, no public schedule. That's the euphemism for you're really not going to see him. We're going to go on to the private grounds of a private golf club and play private golf with private friends, you're not going to see them. Therefore, the rest of you can stand down. Yes, we'll have the pool nearby. So the pool went along, and the pool was in the general area. That's its own issue, but the pool was in the general area. So the pool finds out then on this beautiful weekend that the president's playing with Tiger Woods. They found out because there was a correspondent, I believe he is a senior writer with Golf Magazine, I hope I don't have that wrong, but he is just because of his own profession a personal friend 
of the of someone at the really nice golf course in Florida forgive me I don't remember its name where the president was playing and this is the guy's world he just knows these folks he might have been a member for all I know but he found out the president was there he knew Tiger was there did the math found out they were together great what a scoop for him okay now the pool's mad nobody told them about Tiger Woods the White so what, House, does Ed, what does Ed, Ed Henry do? Uh, and who- Ed Henry came later because there were two things afoot. They started saying, come on, let us have a picture. Let us just go out as they blow by on a green. Let us at least take a picture. Let's see them together. The White House held to what they said. We told you this is a private weekend. Um, and the White House press got mad. And Henry, as the there is a White House uh, association of White House media that elects its own officers. Ed Henry of Fox is the current president elected of that group. And Ed Henry, speaking for the others, says, no way, foul, foul, no way. Um, and the White House said, no, we told you it's private. Tiger Woods somehow changes that equation for the press. It's too good a picture. They shouldn't kept us away. And there is an argument to be made that once any reporter kind of broke the plane of the third wall and found out what was happening, uh, that the White House at that point would confirm to its pool or tell its pool what was happening. The reporter from Golf Magazine didn't have any access to the president or to um, uh, Tiger Woods while this was going on, but he knew. Well, let's let's Sorry. go to, I mean, you and I sort of came down on somewhat different sides of the, of the equation on yeah. this. Uh, let's hear what Charles Krauthammer had to say on the news this week and then sort of get Matt's uh, 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 dislocated take on the way President Obama and his press corps interact. Uh, The guy wants to play golf. The guy deserves a couple of days off. Uh, He wants privacy. Big deal. This is is the biggest non-media, non-story that the media have created since the Kardashian weddings. You know, I, I, you know, he's got a long way to go before he plays half as much golf as Eisenhower. So a pretty good president, you'd have to admit. So Matt Makoviak, uh, later in the week, uh, Ed Henry is uh, asking Jay Carney at the podium, uh, will there be any uh, opportunity at the swearing in of Jack Lou to ask questions about sequestration? And and Jay Carney says, no, it's a private family ceremony. And uh, I, I know. And then he makes a quip about, uh, I know these things aren't as important as the president's golf swing, but it's a it's a private affair. Down in Texas, how are you looking at all this? Well, yeah, I thought it was an interesting recounting there from Ann about sort of the chronology there. I think I think really what happened is there were a couple different things that all combined and made it sort of a combustible moment. I definitely think the cultural aspect of him playing with Tiger, which is a you know, salacious photo that sort of crosses over from politics into popular culture, you know, that would have been worth millions of dollars had anyone been able to get a, a snap a shot of that, was one aspect of this. I think another aspect is the White House has had a deliberate strategy of communicating directly with the public uh, and really going around the White House press corps over the over really the first five years. And they do that by bringing in regional reporters from affiliates who don't cover the White House every day for direct interviews. They do that by you know, doing shows like The View and Late Night Comedy, um, not doing press conferences, not doing interviews with the, the major television networks. Um, and really, the only major interviews he's been doing has been sort of this quarterly interview with CBS 60 Minutes. Um, and I, so I think, I think there was some pent-up frustration because of that as well. And so you, you add it all up, and 
And so the, the fact that there wasn't access over this entire weekend, it was an entirely private weekend, which over an entire weekend, that's a little bit unusual, I think. You, you combine all those elements together, and that's why there was such frustration. And I think Ed Henry was representing that frustration. I think Ed understands, as a correspondent for Fox, going up against a Democratic White House, that he is he's on a nice edge, right? And, and so anything he does is going to be viewed suspiciously. And so I think he was very careful not to go beyond representing the White House Correspondents Association. Um, but you know what the result was? The result was that, that they, they were able to do uh, one question for the U.S. press, I think, the next, the next day or the day after when the Japanese prime minister was in town. That was not part of the plan initially. So, you know, they're going to start doing maybe perhaps a little bit more on this access side. But I think there is a real frustration among the White House press corps that they are, at this moment, stenographers. Uh, that they're not getting a give and take and they're not getting much background on how policymaking uh, is coming about. So, uh, Matt Makoviak, uh, always great to have you on the show. Look forward to your next appearance and uh, always following your tweets around the clock at, at Matt Makoviak. Take care, Matt. Appreciate it. See ya. Shifting over to Capitol Hill, Chris Freitz is national correspondent for National Journal, covering politics, congressional leadership, and the intersection of money, politics, and policy, inhabited by Washington's influence class. He's the founder of Influence Alley at National Journal and, before that, Politico Influence, from his days working for the Harris Vandehei crew. Chris, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, it's good to be here. So over the previous 20, 25 minutes or so, we've been talking a little bit, bit about the sequester debate and especially the interesting uh, brouhaha over Gene Sperling's position with uh, Bob Woodward and, uh, and uh, Ron Fournier. But where the rubber really hits the road, Chris, is your beat up on Capitol Hill. So share with our listeners uh, who, are, who will hear this on Saturday what actually went down on Thursday and why it's relevant to them. Well, you know, we saw the Senate try to avoid the big across-the-board spending cuts that are uh, scheduled to go into effect on Friday. Uh, just this afternoon, there was a Democratic bill uh, that included some tax increases and some spending cuts and a Republican bill that would have given the president the ability uh, and the responsibility to make the cuts himself. Uh, both of those bills uh, failed to get the 60 votes uh, needed to move forward. Uh, so it looks, as of right now, now that the, by the time your listeners are uh, hearing this on Saturday, the sequester will be in full effect. Any surprise to you in that? No, there was no surprise at all. Uh, in fact, uh, the the idea that either of these things could go forward has been dismissed almost as soon as they were proposed, uh, because both Republicans and Democrats are standing their ground on this. Uh, Democrats feel like they won the election. President Obama was reelected, and that means that to avert some of these spending cuts, we should look at tax increases uh, for some of uh, the citizens uh, who are more wealthy here in the country. And Republicans are saying, no, we, we did tax increases to avoid a fiscal cliff a few months ago. This is about spending cuts, and, and we're happy uh, to get some spending cuts, even if they have to be uh, with a axe instead of a scalpel. Were you at the Capitol earlier in the week for the unveiling of the Rosa Parks statue in the 45-second uh, meeting between the president and Speaker Boehner? You know, I was not. Uh, I was not in, in the uh, statuary hall when that happened, uh, but I did. I did, in fact, see the uh, see the exchange on video. 
and anything of substance there. What's the body language? What's the relationship? You're covering the leadership on the Hill. What are they thinking about what's happening back at the White House? You know, I, I'll, uh, I'm actually working on a story right now about uh, these relationships. And there's been a lot of uh, talk about the relationships between the president and the speaker, uh, between Mitch McConnell and, and Joe Biden, who, uh, as you know, they are the closers up here. They seem to negotiate 11th hour deals. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about the relationships among all the players. And it's almost, you know, I feel like I'm reading Cosmo sometimes with all the relationship stuff that is uh, happening up here when you pick up a paper. But uh, the thing that I'm finding is that it doesn't look like it's going to matter that much. As dysfunctional as some of these relationships are, you know, certainly the president and the speaker don't get along. Uh, you know, the speaker had said, you know, recently that uh, the president doesn't have the guts uh, to go forward uh, with, uh, you know, with a plan to uh, avoid sequestration. You know, uh, the uh, minority leader, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, has said he's not going to do an 11th hour deal with uh, Joe Biden again. And, you know, he's not picking up the phone to uh, bail out Democrats who don't want to uh, go the way the Republicans want to go. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of posturing and we're not talking to each other feeling up here. And I don't know that that matters. And uh, the reason that is is because both Harry Reid, uh, who controls the Center for the Democrats, and, and Boehner in the House have said that they want to do things uh, through regular order. That's, you know, we want to put uh, a budget in committee. We want to have amendments offered. We want to put it on the floor for a debate. We don't want to have these backroom deals where, uh, you know, leaders and the president are cutting deals that they then have to sell uh, to their members uh, on uh, both sides of the aisle. They want to try to go forward with a more open and transparent pr uh, process. Now, that's uh, also risky, and it takes much more time, but it looks like because everybody feels like a jilted lover after so many failed uh, behind-the-scenes talks that they may just go the regular route and see what they can get done. So the pivot on your story, Chris, is the, the sequester bills failed uh, at the end of the week. Now what happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Well, what happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is that we continue to watch. And I had a story earlier this week uh, that took a look at what, what are House Republicans thinking, and they're in a wait-and-see mode right here, uh, right now. If you see, um, you know, all the statements are very, uh, are very kind of rote at this point as uh, both sides watch to see what are the outcomes of the sequester. Does the sky fall? Do people really start to have to wait in line for hours at the airport? Uh, are people furloughed immediately and, and off the clock for their government jobs? Is that impacting people trying to get government services? What is uh, the impact of these deep spending cuts? And if people feel them right away and there's an outcry and people uh, get angry about it, well, then they'll have to deal with those uh, sequestration cuts immediately, and Republicans feel like they'll lose the leverage that they have and they'll have to deal on that discrete issue. On the other hand, if people kind of go about their daily business, the sky doesn't fall, and the president is made to look like maybe he was the boy who cried wolf here, then Republicans feel like they've increased their leverage, that they can uh, go back to the American people and say, look, we cut some spending. It wasn't that bad. Uh, what the president said was going to happen did not happen. Uh, we don't need to raise taxes like the president says we need to uh, because the spending cuts you know, didn't we're not the end of the world, and they feel like they have some leverage going into the summertime uh, when the uh, debt limit that has been suspended right now goes back into effect, and they will need to raise that limit again in order for the government to pay 
bills it's already racked up, they feel like they'll be able to roll that debate together with sequestration and try to get a bigger package done. Well, I'm joined by my old pal from the Clinton White House, uh, Ann Edwards. Um, and you know, in terms of tactics coming from the White House, I want to hear just in quick succession, uh, the rare tactic rolled out, which is send the cabinet out to every possible uh, speaking opportunity and really get cabinet members talking, especially the holdovers. So let's hear from Eric Holder, the attorney general, and then Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood. I want to get Ann's reaction about the tactic and then get Chris's view of whether these things are, these PR moves are, are moving any emotions up on Capitol Hill. This is something that is going to have an impact on the safety of this country. And anybody who says that that's not true is either lying or saying something that runs contrary to the facts. The president has put a plan on the table to, to, to save the $85 billion. The president has made phone calls to the but Republican the House passed version in the of House it too. and in but the, the House passed the idea legislation the president to solve this. The idea the president hasn't reached out is just not true. It's not factual. He's reached out. He's talked to Republican leaders. He's put a plan on the table. Now it's the Congress's opportunity this week as they come back from listening to their constituents about all the hurt that's going to be taking place in the country as a result of this sequester. I believe these members of Congress will push their leaders to say, let's fix this before Friday. That was Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood on with NBC's David Gregory on Meet the Press uh, earlier in the week. Ann Edwards, we used to do this in the Clinton days a lot, roll out the cabinet to do the uh, the messaging on behalf of the White House. First time I think I've seen a lot of it in President Obama's administration. What's involved when you, when you decide to use this trigger? What they do is they can cover a lot of ground in local markets, and this was hardly unique to this White House or to the Clinton White House. Um, I think that this White House, I've seen them do it more topically. They'll take a collection of cabinet officers, people who will get paid attention to when they travel uh, around a particular topic and send them into very effective places where they definitely have a position to make. Look, they work for the government. They're supposed to be explaining what they do. Um, The Congress has been doing the same things. And is there a tactic involved? Sure. Sometimes, and I don't know this time, I haven't looked at any travel schedules. Wouldn't be surprised to find out if a couple of those uh, very capable spokes people in the cabinet had managed to find their way into districts of members of Congress who are being a little opposite on the issue. That's the tactic, is you can go straight into their home ground. What Chris said, it's all completely true, but what Chris said also is if whether sequester turns out to be a dud, that nothing happens, or if it's a slow motion disaster, which nobody is sure right now that who gains leverage or who loses. If nothing happens by Saturday night, well, somebody's going to have to set the timetable for when they're watching. But more than the uh, members of Congress and more than the cabinet, I think the more telling spokespeople, Chris, were the governors when they were here. Every governor, didn't matter the party, didn't matter the state, they are standing on the track watching this train come at them because of the necessary services or services which are helpful, uh, which are going to be dropped by the federal government, the next step is the state picks it up. It passes down the food chain. And the governors are not happy about this at all. 
Chris Freitz, there's been some frustration expressed that sometimes uh, people like Mitch McConnell, John Boehner, Eric Cantor, they aren't always the best spokespeople uh, and their venues uh, aren't that varied over the Senate and House press galleries. Is there frustration that there's not a good sort of uh, PR vehicle and ability to move television the way an administration can, especially sending a president down to Newport News? Well, I, I think certainly, Josh. I think that's always the case uh, for the party that's out of power in the presidency. Uh, that's one of the biggest advantages you have is the bully pulpit that the president can command. And, and no matter who your spokesman is or who, how great they are, I mean, even on an issue like immigration where you have a rock star like Marco Rubio, he can only attract so much attention compared right. to the president. So no matter who you have, uh, it, it's always difficult. And to the idea of the cabinet secretaries, you know, Ray LaHood was up here this afternoon uh, meeting with Senate Democratic leaders and when Dick Durbin went to the floor uh, to argue on behalf of the Senate Democratic bill to uh, avoid the sequester, he made the point that you know Ray LaHood uh, was making a case against why this would be so bad uh, for the FAA. There would be so many uh, furloughs that would have to take effect. It would hurt uh, our ability to, uh, to move people around the country in the air. And so that also was echoed internally as they have been doing outside. Uh, and I think the White House faces a decision now. And part of my reporting has been to ask the question, if you're uh, the president and you are making a case that the sequester will be very bad for the American people, when it goes into effect, how do you choose uh, to implement it? Do you try to just make the cuts and make them as harsh and, and make people feel them immediately, or do you try to buffet those cuts uh, so that they don't hurt people as much, but then you lose some political and rhetorical advantage because people People will say, well, it wasn't that bad. Do you let them go into full effect and then risk people saying that you're, you know, you're hurting the country for political gain? Or do you wait and, and, and try to make it less uh, hurt less and then lose some uh, political advantage because Republicans will be able to see, see it wasn't that bad? So it puts the administration in a very tough spot. They need to go. I was talking to some Democrats today who made the case that they have to decide, do they go all in on that bet that we're just going to let it go into effect, it's going to hurt, and we need to make that bet and see if we can win it? Or do we have a very big stack here, we can fold on this one, live to play another hand, and see how it unwinds? And that's what I think we'll be watching very closely after Friday is how does the administration implement these cuts. Chris, is anybody putting a timeline on this if it's a short-term you know, is the asteroid going to hit us, or is it far enough out that it can, we can do something about it? Is anyone up there putting a timeline on, on what sequester, how long this takes? Yeah, I think uh, up here there is a feeling that there's two to three more weeks uh, to get a sense of how is it playing. And that will be the preliminary sense of kind of what happened and how much time do we have. And if that, that gives, uh, if there's not an outcry, in those preliminary weeks, I think this this definitely rolls into the summertime, where the the, the cuts continue to take effect, and we're looking at you know undoing this through either the debt limit debate or through the budget. You know, Patty Murray today, the chairman of the Senate uh, Budget Committee, said that her budget will have a mechanism to uh, undo the sequester with a more balanced approach, and for Democrats, that means you know tax increases and spending cuts, and so there. 
I think we're starting to look at a much longer time frame uh, than many people expected when uh, it first became uh, conventional wisdom that the cuts would, in fact, go into effect. Interesting. And Chris Freitz, national correspondent for National Journal covering politics, uh, congressional leadership, and the intersection of money, politics, and policy. Thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Can we check back with you in a couple of weeks and see how this all transpires? Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. My old friend Ann Edwards, thanks for riding shotgun with me on Polyoptics this week. A couple things before we go. Fascinating stuff this week. First, Sunday night, Michelle Obama gives the Best Picture Award at the Oscars. Let's hear her. And now for the moment we have all been waiting for. And the Oscar goes to... Argo. God, the drum roll from uh, Marvin Hamlish's, the late Marvin Hamlish's orchestra sounds so good. Uh, A lot of logistics involved in terms of getting a satellite into the White House, uh, setting her up. And yet, Anne, uh, this is not the Clinton White House. This is not the kind of thing that it's universally applauded. The First Lady takes some criticism for now wading into the entertainment and celebrity space. Do you agree? Oh, hey, if you want to talk about a White House where First Lady took a lot of criticism, I think we are qualified in the Clinton White House. Um, I thought it was great what Ms. Obama did. I really do. She was also all looking wonderful because that was the night of the governor's dinner, I believe. The White House was uh, putting a huge and beautiful annual dinner together for the National Governors Association winter meeting, which is why she looked great and why the military aides were in the House that night. Love seeing the military aides on camera. Um, Switching over uh, across the Atlantic Ocean to Rome and the Vatican, poignant uh, images this week from the uh, retirement of Pope Benedict XVI. Let's hear uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York talking on the Today Show earlier this week, giving his assessment of of his meeting with Benedict uh, uh, before the retirement ceremony. I love him very much. Uh, He means the world to me. I mean, all we Catholics call him our Holy Father. The Italians call him Il Papa. He's like the daddy of the family. And to see this gentle, uh, learned, loving, holy man, to see him very fragile, to see him having made what I consider to be a remarkably humble and courageous decision, um, it was very moving. It was a very tender moment. Um, I was honored when I went up, but I, I only had a little while with him, but I was honored that he remembered my name. It's always good when the boss knows your name. <laughs> I was glad that he remembered gratefully his visit to the Archdiocese of New York in 2008. And I just said to him, Holy Father, I love you. I thank you. I'm praying with you and for you. And so are the people of the Archdiocese of New York. And I meant it. My dear friend, Ann Edwards, you're both a Catholic girl and a maestro of media logistics. What did you make of the coverage from the Vatican? Well, I'm better at one than the other, and I'm not (laughs) going to answer the question. (laughs) Um, I think they've done it just fine. There's not much to do. The Pope is being very clear. He wants to soft pedal this. He just wants to quietly go away. He also is a structured man and made sure he put structure on how this would happen. It's interesting that this time when, um, I think it was a great decision. I really do. It's, you know, when anybody's wrestled with their parents about it being time to give up the car keys, uh, the Pope knew that about himself. I hope we don't find out at some point that he's more ill than he let on. He certainly looks really frail. And if he just wants to sit down, anybody who loves someone who's older knows when it's time to just have them sit, just sit down, take it easy. And I think that's what's happening here. But with the orchestration, a lot of the drama will go away, and I think that's a good thing. 
often when the drama of the, we're not getting word, the untimely death of the Pope in the middle of the night, and then the conclave gathers and is shocked that they have to pick a new Pope, um, that they've got some warning. They've had some time to think about it. It's calmer. There's not the emotion attached as there is when someone passes on. And I think that's all going to be to the good. Well, a very varied week uh, in the week of polyoptics. Ann Edwards, thank you so much for spending some time with us, covering the range of things happening. And uh, it's always great to hear your voice on the other side of the microphone. Thanks, Josh. You too. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.